This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Great to be back with you again. Libby is off for a couple of days. Long-term care home indoor visits were first allowed this past Wednesday, but some loved ones of residents are complaining about the rules, depending on the nursing home. I want to hear from you if you've been among the first to spend time inside a long-term care home in Ontario, perhaps as an essential caregiver. How was the experience? Most importantly, in what condition is your loved one who was in lockdown for months because of COVID-19? Numbers to call, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 866 740-4740. This is our first topic of discussion with the Zoomer Squad. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello, squad. Hey, Jane. Hi, Jane. Well, one woman whose mother is a resident in long-term care says the rules enforced during the visits means there's little benefit to going inside the home. Marissa, I'll start with you. It seems like some of the homes are making up their own rules, and in fact, even masked, the loved ones are not allowed to touch the residents. We have heard that, that some homes have taken extreme precautions to protect residents. Um, I think it's important to, in this discussion, distinguish between sort of casual visitors and what many are calling essential caregivers, which is oftentimes the family member. And that's really the issue is, is not being able to touch your loved one. Now, if you're outside, the restrictions are much less uh, restrictive than when you're inside. If you're inside a home, you need to ensure that you've had testing within the previous two weeks and that that test came back negative. You need to be dressed in full uh, personal protective gear, including a mask and gloves. Um, and initially, when the announcement was made, we understood that people would be allowed, essential caregivers would be allowed to actually support an individual in the home, get in and out of bed, maybe help them uh, bathe, maybe support them with with eating and, and, and so on and so forth. But we are now hearing stories that impact that that's not the case, that some homes are being even more restrictive. David, would you like to comment on what's going on? It seems like there's just the interpretation of the rules that have put out by the provincial government. Some uh, owners of the homes are being more uh, restrictive and conservative. Others are are going to the letter of the law and what's been recommended. I, I don't know uh, that we should be surprised because if you take into account the tremendous variation in the size of the homes, the number of people in the homes, what are the facilities, how old, how um, new, how big are the rooms, how many people uh, can gather in a room, and if there's uh, two visitors in a room, how much space is that left over? It's just all over the place. And if you take a look at uh, visiting rules in a non 
COVID environment, whether it's, you know, uh, maternity wing or, or visitors in that post-surgery situation, those are also, we don't think about it because we understand that each hospital does its own thing based on its own facilities. So to me, this is completely to be expected. It's very, very unfortunate because it goes along with the report we've also had, and I believe we're going to discuss, about how understaffed all these homes are, thus making it even more problematic if a loved one who has been a caregiver uh, is not allowed to um, you know, apply that caregiving help. Right. Uh, Peter, would you like to comment on yeah, this? And I, I hope you had a nice vacation. Yeah, well, it was, it was a bit of a busman's holiday, really, but <laughs> it was all right. Um, the uh, the um, homes, I guess, are uh, worried about new outbreaks. And, um, you know, we saw, we saw in the last time around a number of class action lawsuits and individual lawsuits and I guess they are covering their backs and, and are being extremely cautious with these visits just to ensure that they show at least that they did everything possible to um, preclude another outbreak. Mm-hmm. So I assume that's going on. And, um, you know, uh, it, unfortunately, it impacts the family caregivers. But uh, I, I, I'm sure their lawyers have told them to you know, get very serious, get very tough, and show that they're being tough in case uh, there are future lawsuits. We're about to get some first-hand knowledge. The phones are ringing uh, from those Zoomer radio listeners who also have loved ones in in long-term care, nursing homes. Uh, again, I'll give out the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Let's go to Heather in Toronto. Hi, Heather. Welcome to our chat with the Zoomer squad. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. This is the first time I've actually called in because it's um, very close to my heart what's going on. And um, my mother's in a, a very good nonprofit, very new, high-end um, senior resident that has a memory care floor as well. And she's in the memory care. Now, my visits inside and outside have been great, I have to say. They, they've been really, really well done, etc. cetera. Uh, very, very careful in the protocol before you go in. And um, I've seen her outside and inside. But something really horrible happened during the pandemic that, to me, was inexcusable. But there's nothing can be done about it now. Um, about uh, just after Mother's Day, I, I called every day. I called and I found out, I said, how is my mother doing? I said, well, she had a fall got a cut on her head and she was limping a bit but we're going to keep an eye on her she seems fine I went okay and then we went to see her at the window and they had her in a wheelchair now she had been walking before that with a with a walker in a wheelchair well I said why is she in the wheelchair well you know she said her her hip is sore because she had um uh, she's you know she's 92 and they said she was tired and she likes to be in the wheelchair I went okay and then her head looked horrible, but they said, no, the doctor checked her, said it was fine. And then a month later, she's still in the wheelchair. And what we sa- I said, well, I don't understand. And then a month later, they said to me, well, we sent in for um, a portable, respira- or portable x-ray machine. 
just to recheck her hip, just in case, because we did not see the fall. Mm-hmm. And it came back, she's got a broken hip. Oh, she had been there seven oh, weeks with a broken hip <clears throat> in the chair, and they had been changing her, putting her into pants, putting her into this, oh, into that, no. all the time with a broken hip. Now, they never told us they were getting a portable x-ray machine. And we only found out because they had to call us to say, we think she needs surgery. And I was like in shock. (laughs) And I thought, well, isn't it the protocol that if someone takes a fall and no one sees it and, you know, the lady is limping and doesn't want to walk, that they would call the family and make them aware and call, Mm -hmm. you know, have someone come and check her from the hospital or take her to the hospital and give us the option they said, well, because of COVID, we didn't really want to go there. I said, well, mm-hmm. we could have made that choice ourselves, and we would have taken the chance to take her to the hospital. Now, Heather, has your mom had the surgery? Yes, she had the surgery, and she's still not walking. She had, in the recovery um, in the hospital where she had the surgery, they did not take her where we wanted her to go. They said they that wasn't where they were supposed to take her. So anyway... They took her somewhere else, and she had the surgery. She was in there, ended up for like three weeks, heavily drugged on hydromorphone, and she had lost 15 pounds. And it was just like by the time she got back to the home, and I actually saw her two days ago, she is basically not there anymore. Oh, wow. So it's been horrible for you. Horrible, but you were asking about the protocol of the home for the the COVID and everything is very good. I will give them that. It's a very clean place. But there was some sort of lack of communication there involving my mother that I, you know, I'm just at a loss for words because I just can't imagine someone that's 92 having a broken, and not only was it broken, after seven weeks like that, it ended up also displaced. Oh, I believe it. I fractured my I fractured my hip. I fractured my hip in 2013, and I can tell you it's extremely painful yeah. until so you just, have the yeah. surgery. So they just increased her her hydromorphone, and that of course stopped her from eating. And they just figured she was old, so she was complaining. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, like oh, sometimes they yell out just because they have dementia or whatever. But the difference was day and night from the time. Sure. COVID started to now. Marissa, do you have any comments or questions uh, for Heather? You're saying she was seven weeks with a broken hip? Seven weeks. I mean, goodness. We got all kinds you of... You do have legal rights. Um, oh, how, many days, how many days after the fall did you see her in the wheelchair for the first time? Um, I'd say four Okay, so you could, even if you allowed for, maybe they didn't see it right away or they didn't catch it right away, uh, seven weeks, I'm, I'm echoing what Marissa says, seven weeks letting it go. Yeah, yeah you know, let Even it, if you yeah. didn't well, catch it you in know 48 hours or something, maybe okay, but seven weeks, my goodness. Here's the, here's the part I left out. When they called for the x-ray machine, the portable one, they had not let us know, number one, but also they said, well, it'll take a couple of weeks for us to get it to you because we've got other people wanting it. They didn't even tell us that. So not only that, they figured something was wrong and waited two extra weeks for the portable x-ray machine instead of letting us know. And I know for a fact, if that came back not broken, we would have never known they brought an x-ray machine in at all. Heather, uh, Marissa mentioned there that you do have the right to take legal action. Is that something you're considering or have considered? Well, 
my my brother and I were talking about it, and um, his worry is that they will kick her, found, find a reason to get her basically out of the home, and we would have nowhere for her. And there's no place anywhere for her to go. And they do have ways of doing that if we're going to cause an issue. Um, they've said, um, the, the manager of care there has said to me, you know, very apologetic, has re- reprimanded the nurses that uh, decided not to call, and they're still working there, but reprimanded them. And um, they said, we're not going to let that happen again, but it doesn't help me. And uh, said, well, we're going to get a physio in to see if we can get her out walking now. Well, that hasn't happened. And it's been, I guess, she's been back there three weeks now, I guess, two weeks. And there's still no physio going on. There's nothing going on. She's still sitting in the chair, covered in bruises and cuts and blankets and oh, terrible, terrible. non-communicative. Well, Marissa, a final word to you. And Heather, thank you so much for calling in and telling us your story, because it's just, uh, it's a precautionary tale, really. Yep. yep. You know, Heather, would you, do you think that maybe I could give you a call after this episode? I would love, I would love okay. that. And you know what? My brother would be the one to talk to, because he's, okay. he's probably the, the one that's most in tune with exactly the issues. And there were so many. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll get your number from our from our producers. Right. Well, I'll get you your story. I would love that. Thank you, thank Heather. You. I'll let well, Zeev put you. you on hold and, and get your information to pass along to Marissa. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Uh, it's Jane for Libby today. Let's go to Gad in Toronto. Uh, go ahead, Gad. You're you have a story for us? Yes, I do. Hi. Uh, my wife is in uh, Valley uh, for the last two years. Have uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, I must tell you, this place is doing miracles. You know, they keep you know all the residents in such good care. I think only only two two people uh, passed away, supposedly from COVID nineteen uh, complication, but only two. And they are you know very strict with everything. And I I was uh, last Wednesday I was the first one in the indoor uh, visit. The place is, of course, they, are, they don't, they are understaffed, that's for sure, and they have to struggle with it. They uh, gave us a room with three chairs because they allowed two visitors. So I came with my son uh, to visit my wife, and there was a distance uh, between, the, between the chairs. But uh, they told us they are, the only, they are the only one, but they don't have facility for many. They have a, a garden in the back, so, you know, more people can go visit outside. Yes. <clears throat> but inside, uh, they don't have enough room. And the lack of staff is really, really a problem. My wife is really well taken care of, really. I'm so appreciative of, of that. But, Gad, are, are you allowed to touch your wife to, you no. know, help? No, no, no. no, which is a big problem because she doesn't understand why. And she, I want her to, to hug her and kiss her, but they won't let me. And especially on this inside visit, they were, you know, on a Hawkeye, on a, you know, so we couldn't do anything. And she doesn't understand it. And she doesn't understand why I'm with a mask. Um, yes. And the cold and this and that. I just want to ask David, um, what would your guidance be, David, uh, where essential caregivers are allowed to be in there uh, helping and, and physically contacting their loved ones? And Gad's telling us that he's not allowed to. Is there any kind of recourse? 
Well, I don't think I don't think there is because um, uh, you know, and I'm not speaking either as a trained doctor or as a or as a legal person. But the problem is that if if they have a risk of infection or of, of the transmission of the disease, they're entitled to take whatever measures they can. And if the person is uh, you know has dementia, doesn't understand, then at some point we have to say this is a tragedy of coronavirus and not necessarily of the of the nursing home because you know what are they supposed to do on the other hand if there's any way of informing the resident and i have heard many stories of people who do not either do not have dementia or have early stage or they are they are sort of aware of what's going on and you can lay the groundwork and you can explain and you can you know prep them for for uh, you know that visit, then obviously I, I would hope that they're trying to do that. But I think it's an agonizing dilemma, and I think that we have to have some, uh, you know, sympathy for the squeeze play, if you will. Maybe that's not the right word. The the pressure that they're under to simultaneously stop infections and yet be humane and visit. Peter, I what about you? Go ahead, Marissa. I was just going to say, we have to remember, too, that I think what came from the province was really guidelines for homes. Yes. But it wasn't a legal right for people. And so homes will continue to do as they do, and they'll continue to take the precautions they feel that are necessary in order to keep the residents safe. Um, Despite the fact that the province has said, you know, we're safe where there are no outbreaks, you can allow family, uh, you know, essential caregivers into the homes. And, and there is the, the ability to, to touch residents where safe. But again, I think we have to remember that these are merely guidelines that have come from the province. And Peter, a final thought before we move on to yeah, the next well, topic. I, I mean, I'm I just going to echo uh, Marissa's um, thoughts. The, the government did give homes leeway. And I, I assume homes are taking it, you know, and, and, and enforcing their own sort of local rules. And uh, it's obviously creating a lot of uh, confusion and heartache. And, um, but I, I just don't know what the solution is, because the, these homes at first were accused of not acting responsibly enough. And now they're sort of the pendulum has swung the other way and they're overdoing it. And um, again, like David said, it, it's just it's just a tragic outcome of this uh, virus. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby and our Zoomer squad. They're here every Monday at this time. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Let's talk about the study that came out last Wednesday concluding that for-profit long-term care homes in Ontario saw significantly worse outbreaks of COVID-19 and more related deaths than their non-profit or municipally-run counterparts. Marissa, we were talking about this uh, during the early days of the of the pandemic. This is this is not news. You know, I think that there is a need for more data, and that was one of the things that I think that the commission would look into is really the discrepancy in performance between for-profit and not-for-profit. But this is another report that really underscores what we've already heard in previous reports that have come out earlier in the pandemic, one from the STAR, most notably. Um, And part of the reason is, is a lot of the for-profit homes happen to be older buildings, Um, So they'll have narrower hallways, uh, four-bedroom wards, certainly 
staffing seems to be a big issue in for-profit homes as compared to not-for-profit homes, and you can see why that might be. Um, If someone is trying to turn a profit, well, what's the biggest budget line item? It happens to be staff. Um, So all of those things factor into that, um, and this report tells us exactly that. And as you mentioned uh, about the design standards, older design standards, homes uh, that are older appear to show worse outcomes. So Mm -hmm. that, in fact, David, has been detailed. Well, it has been, and I think it's a critical, you know, you can keep changing the lens so you can say, well, for-profit versus not-for-profit, but is it older versus newer, and is it coincidentally that more of the older homes are for-profit? But it goes back to, I think, the, the source of it is that in a long-term care facility, the constraints on revenue are much more absolute than they are in, let's say, a, what we would call a retirement home or assisted living or anything, you know, short of long-term care. And if your revenue is constrained, your only uh, route to profit, as Marissa pointed out, is expenditures, and staffing is your main expenditure, and it's no accident that the the new report this week about how bad the staffing is, again, for-profit homes much more understaffed than uh, not-for-profit. Well, last week, the Ford government announced that they're changing the way they fund long-term care home expansions in a bid to spur construction so that we will have newer homes. Uh, Peter, is that the answer, or in your opinion, do we get profit out of nursing homes in Ontario? Well, you know, um, you can create more beds, but if you don't uh, add more staff, uh, you know, it's just going to be uh, exacerbation of the problem, and it's it's going to grow exponentially. More and more homes, less and less staff, less and less training, less protective measure. Like the whole thing is going to cascade the next time something like this breaks down, breaks out. So, um, you know. Ford had to do something. He had to make some sort of positive announcement in, the, in this uh, long-term care mess. He's trying to, you know, put out a good message there. Um, but, you know, until they address the, the key, um, the key uh, problem, staffing, I, I just don't see adding more beds as a solution. I've been encouraging you, our Zoomer radio listeners, to call in if you have a loved one in long-term care and you've been able to be inside with them since uh, they loosened the restrictions last Wednesday to give us a call. Uh, Phone lines are jammed. Let's go uh, to a frequent caller, Verna in Oakville. Hi, Verna. It's nice to hear from you. Hello, Jane. Hi, Verna. Lovely to to hear your program again. Um, So... Yes, I had my first indoor meeting um, visit on Saturday, and my husband's first words, as, as they were last time, were, Verna May, will you marry me? Aww. He is so, you know, the more I visit, the better he gets. Oh, he's that's now, great. He's now got his confidence back. He's got his humor and his emotions back again. He's looking at me like I'm real, you know, not just staring. So I have a happy, I have a happy story, but I was listening to that poor lady whose mother went through hell, and so everybody is different. Now, I will just say that um, no essential family visitors are allowed yet in my husband's long-term care home, but they are planning and working on it so that it might happen in the fairly near future. So I am full of hope and 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 I'm feeling very happy at the moment. My husband's happy. He's not sleeping, but he's happy. And and I'm happy. And um, 
and where he is at Sheridan Villa, they're very, very well organised, but they are cautious, which can be frustrating at times, but I appreciate their caution, um, and they are working on it very hard. So, yes, I know a lot of people aren't as lucky as me, and their loved ones haven't really survived this COVID shutdown as well as Bruce has. I mean, he went through a terrible, terrible time where he went downhill very fast, lost weight and he lost his sense of hope he just sort of gave up it was it was a nightmare but now things are looking better so i don't know what to say um, i'm just looking forward to the next Verna, were you allowed to have physical contact with your husband on saturday well i don't know if i should tell you this but i was i was allowed to have a quick hug mm. and i was also allowed to take him to the bathroom. I don't know if I should be saying this, but I, I am saying it. I was allowed to take him to the bathroom. You know, I have my mask. We, I do all the sanitation because I am a nurse, so I, I know the importance of all this. But when we were in the washroom, we were in private there. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Uh, David, this, but this is, I mean, Verna's a little bit nervous about uh, talking about this physical contact, but this has been encouraged for essential caregivers, yes? Yes, because uh, exactly what Verna said, and I'm so delighted to hear uh, that things are getting better, because, of course, we've, we've heard uh, uh, the opposite in, in previous weeks, and we were all rooting for this to turn out well for Verna, but it's mm-hmm. true that the, the it is essential, uh, you know, what the the emotional as well as the physical. And uh, I'm sure all, I would like to believe all of the long-term care homes are working toward that outcome. But as we've described earlier, there's such a variety of circumstances. And one of the things, not today, I know we're running out of time, but for later, if we, I know we're going to return to this topic, is I'm wondering if the visitors are required to sign any releases before they go in. Mm, interesting. Verno, oh. did you have to sign a release? No, I just needed my COVID test. So I've had my okay. first COVID okay, test. Thank you. Okay. And um, I didn't have to sign anything at all. Good. So, okay. yes, it was a very lovely, very lovely, lovely visit. Oh, great. And well, Verna, husband, please yes. pl- promise us you'll keep in touch because it's been <laughs> great hearing about uh, the positive progress your husband's like made. You know them. Yes, yes, we feel like we know you, yes. Become <laughs> friends. Yes. And I will. Best. You know I will. Thank you very much. Thanks, Verna. Uh, Peter, that's so heartening to hear, and it's just evidence of how important that connection with loved ones is for these people who have been isolated for months. Yeah, it's um, it's a lovely story, and, and um, I'm glad our long-term care correspondent could, uh, could bring it to us. But um, I, I, I do remember... Um, my mom, uh, they closed the home for a flu outbreak, and it was only two weeks. And after two weeks, I noticed, a, uh, you know, a big change in her. So I, I can't imagine what these poor people are going through after months and months and months. And um, it sounds like Verna's on the, you know, on the right track, and I hope others are like her. Right. We have a few more minutes here. David referenced the Ontario Health Coalition study. I do want to get to that. Mm-hmm. Marissa, just to refresh everybody's memories, mm-hmm. uh, if you were listening last week or you weren't listening, 95% of staff in the province's nursing homes um, are reporting that basic care needs of residents are going unmet due to staff shortages. So we're talking about bathing, uh, cleaning, uh, tooth uh, brushing, that kind of thing, emotional support. Uh, Again, not a surprise, but disappointing. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, and 53% report shortages every day. Um, so it's no wonder you we saw the kind of devastation we did during COVID. I guess my question is, you know, where do we go from here? You know, how many more damning reports do we need until action is actually taken to improve staffing in long-term care, right? We're not even able to have a conversation about what the quality of life of these residents ought to be when basic care needs like hydrating and feeding and even repositioning so that they don't get bed sores when those things aren't even being met, right? We can't even talk about improving their quality of life with different types of activities, entertainment, physiotherapy, when bare minimum standards are not being met. So this is just another deeply disturbing report that I hope does not get brushed off by the government. David, uh, Premier Ford says that the findings of the Ontario Health Coalition study show why his government passed ongoing emergency powers to be able to move staff from hospitals into long-term care. Is that enough? Is it a beginning? What is that? No, it's, it's enough. The analogy I'd like to make is, you know, what happens to a hospital when, let's say, there's a hurricane or a flood or some disaster all bets are off. Everything's emergency. Everything is short-term. The wards are... Nobody's looking at that hospital and saying this is the way it normally runs. We just want to get through this crisis. Trouble is, this time around, the crisis is half a year long. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, a fire broke out over here in that one building for the next couple of weeks. It's going to be flaky. It's going to be different. This is system-wide, and it's ongoing. And on the one hand, we've been on this show several times praising, I think, quite rightly, the heroic frontline workers, but now those heroic frontline workers are reporting there's not enough of them. They know they're being rushed. That report includes language about they're embarrassed, they're humiliated for the residents. They're very well aware of the shortcomings, so that's one leg of the stool. The next leg of the stool is inadequate old buildings. And then the third leg of the stool is this once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, terrible pandemic and it's a perfect storm of bad stuff and it's not going to get fixed with uh with band-aids i'm afraid i think they got to go right back to the square one and look at you know how the whole thing operates and that's going to take some time unfortunately peter your thoughts on this yeah it's a mess and um you know i i wish ford and fullerton luck but uh i you know i it's gonna it's gonna need a huge uh you know start from scratch rethink and uh, right now they, they can't do that. They're they're still putting band aids on. So um, you know, I, I, I'll watch with interest. Well, and well, I, I mean, know, a, a good starting point might be uh, offering proper compensation to PSWs, mm. so that yeah. they're not being paid the same as. as um, a, and that that might help overcome the shortage. Sure. Too, if there's some sort of there in, has in, to in, be there in, has to be an incentive. incentive yeah. Um, to be a personal support worker. They have to give them a living wage. It's not just better wages. I mean, you need a strategy to attract better... You need a strategy to attack... You need a strategy to attract talent Mm -hmm. and retain talent. And so that includes better wages, but that includes better hours, full-time hours. That includes training and education for these people. That includes a better and a healthier work environment for these individuals. And so there needs to be a proper strategy in place. 
And this goes back to the whole for-profit versus not-for-profit. I can remember during the pandemic, uh, Mayor John Tory touting the the fact that they pay their employees better in the municipally run nursing homes. They pay them better. They give them uh, good hours and uh, a a career they can count on, Uh, whereas you don't always get that in the for-profit centres, David. That's true. That's absolutely true. And and unless it's if it's not treated as a career or a, or a potential career or a, a livelihood that is uh, adequately paid, uh, why should we be surprised when uh, these kinds of things happen, especially, uh, and they're probably happening uh, silently uh, day by day for months. I mean, CARP has been complaining about this or, or you know, trying to shine a light on this problem for literally years. And now it takes this pandemic, unfortunately, to, to bring it to a head, but uh, Peter had the right word, the right noun, mess. It's a mess, and it's going to take some time. It needs a complete rethink, uh, and we haven't even gotten into home care, which is probably the the, the best solution long-term as well. But uh, it's a topic we're going to be dealing with for a long time, I'm afraid. Zoomer Squad, I thank you for your time, as always. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks, Gene. Okay, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. By the way, you want a lobby that's on your side, an advocacy group, go to carp.ca to become a CARP member. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.